in tonight, chapter 111. And I'll be taking you through the five, like we do normally on the week, to 115. And I am extremely stoked about this section I get to teach. That's a good thing, right? It's horrible. <laughs> when your Bible teacher can't find something exciting, we're all in trouble. <laughs> so, um, okay, let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for your church in every corner of this earth. We pray you awaken the American church, that we would again literally live like you are the king and everything is about you. Father, we pray for the South American church. And I confess, I don't know a lot about them, but I do know that there's a great work going on in San Salvador. And we pray for our pastor as he's there this week right now. And that your word would continue to spread amongst that area. And Lord, for your Catholic, uh, your Catholic sons and daughters in South America, we pray for genuine conversion amongst them. And God, in Africa, for the impoverished and for the injustice, we pray for your church to become a light and a preview of your kingdom to come there. That you would strengthen those that are being oppressed by the Muslims. And Lord, those that are in poverty, that they would find comfort in knowing that you are going to set all things right when you return. God, for your church in Europe, we are so thankful for its heritage. But Father, what is going on? We pray for the land that once produced Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and so many others to once again become a leading way in your kingdom. But Father, we know that you have purposes and plans, and so I pray for the remnant in Europe that you would strengthen them as they are definitely against all odds. And finally, Father, for your church in Asia, so much darkness, Father. We pray for your church to be light there. And we pray for the underground church to be strengthened. And we pray for it to continue to spread until it reaches Jerusalem where you're where the Jews, Father, that they would hear and believe in Messiah to be Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, oh, and Australia. <laughs> Lord, for the people down under, um, we thank you for what you're doing through Hillsong and just the mighty worship that's coming out of there. And I pray that that would take hold in Australia and that you would be glorified through that work. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was told it was, I don't remember what you call it, but you pray for all the um, saints in all the world. So that's what we did. It's a good thing to do every now and then. I have been told by a friend that when you feel down about your own life and what's going on, begin to pray for the missions around the world because it reminds you that you are a part of a massive kingdom. And sometimes we get narrow-sighted you know, our church on the mountain and somehow, you know, some, just all the drama that's up here and then in Orange County. And then, you know, we just kind of keep our narrow local focus and look at the problems and we forget about how big the work of God is and that we are a part of a larger body. And the American church is not the church. It's part of the church. And I'm thankful for that. So with no further delay, let's get to Psalm chapter 111. Now, 
We've been jumping back and forth between the Psalms. Uh, we started with book one. If you don't know, the Psalms are in five books. We started with book one, then jumped to Proverbs, and then went back to book two. And we've been, and so now here we are in book five, coming to the end of the Psalter. And that's quite an accomplishment. Not a lot of people go through the Psalms verse by verse or chapter by chapter. So pat yourselves on the back. We're almost there. Keep at it. The Psalms for, oh gosh, millennia have been adored by the people of God as a book of praise. But it's not just a book of praise. Actually, quite surprisingly, the Psalter is also a book of politics. <laughs> because the Psalms praise the theocracy of God. When the Psalter talks about politics, it talks about one kind and one politician, and that is God being king over the earth. Theocracy. And it praises that he is king, and it yearns for the time when that kingship will touch down upon earth and rule literally over every nation. That's the praise and the hope and the yearning of the Psalter as we've been going through it. And I think that it speaks quite um, vividly of that theme in our particular chapters and quite appropriately because, you know, we're all political all of a sudden when it, the elections come around. So uh, we're just going to wind down with the whole politic hype with the theocracy of God through Jesus Christ over all nations. So the Psalms do this in two ways. First is probably the most apparent is that they glorify the kingship of God over the earth through the songs themselves. There are many songs in the Psalter that speak of his kingship. And then secondly, less obviously, is the structure of the Psalter itself speaks of the kingship of God. So I will touch on those two points here. The songs of the Psalter. I'm going to give you guys just a brief taste of some of these psalms so we can see the kingship element within the book. And it starts as early as Psalm 2, which is one of two introduction chapters. And in Psalm 2, you have this scene of nations raging. It says that they're raging against God and against his anointed. And it says there in 2 verse 4... That he who sits in the heavens panics, doesn't know what to do about the rebellion, he laughs. That's the sign of someone in full control who can see the end from the beginning. And he says, <laughs> you keep your rebellion as long as you want, but I'm not worried about it. So it then talks about in verse 6 that God has already set his king on Zion. And that would refer to the anointed one or the Messiah, but I'll talk about that in a minute, so not to get too far ahead. Psalm chapter 10, verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm chapter 22, verse 27. 
22:27 All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 44 verse 4 You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread upon those who rise up against us. And then Psalm 47, the entire psalm speaks of the kingship. In fact, my subtitle in the Bible says, God is king over all the earth. Sums it up pretty good. Psalm 95, verse 3. Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths and the earth, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh come, let us worship. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is king. <laughs> Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He shall judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And just last snippet, we'll do Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name. Forever and ever. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So, in summary, and that was just a little portion of what we got. This doesn't even include the prophets who have much of the same message. Just in the Psalms and just a couple of the Psalms we saw, there is this constant flow of praise because God is in charge and he's king over all the earth. And there's also this longing, there's this recognition that though he's king, things aren't quite yet right and that there's a yearning and longing for his kingship to inhabit the earth and take effect upon the peoples of the earth. So the earth is his and he rules it, but there's still rebellion amongst the peoples that will one day be changed when he returns. And there's this yearning and hope for that moment within the Psalter. And we see that in some of the Psalms. One scholar says this about the Psalms exalting God's kingship. And I thought it was very needful for us. He says, 
one can see all too easily how these songs, the Psalms, would give rise among a people who were weary of corrupt and self-serving rulers to the longing for Yahweh himself to come and take charge. He and he alone would give the people what they needed and wanted. He would take control and sort everything out. The singing of these songs week in and week out while watching the dreary procession of corrupt officials and regimes come and go would provide a natural seedbed for the hope of Israel's God to be king and nobody else. So there is this sung expression of Israel's recognition, we want God to be king. And if you know the history of Israel, they had many kings, not just of their own, but many foreign kings. And the need for God to be king was so great climaxing when jesus showed up but that's another study we'll get to the gospels one day so that's the songs show the kingship of god the structure as well shows the kingship of god and um i've talked to you guys about this a couple times but i'll refresh your memory because i i've taught the psalms to you for quite some time so the entire psalter is structured about this about god's kingship and god is king over Israel through a certain individual. It's not like they just live their merry lives and there's some invisible being ruling over them. God ruled over his people through a vessel. And that vessel, Hebrew word, was called Messiah. Which literally just means anointed one. And when we get to the New Testament, Christ is the Greek of Messiah. So that's what Jesus is. He's Messiah. But the Messiah was not just one person to come in the future. Israel celebrated a Messiah on their throne all the time. Messiah started with Saul. But Saul kind of rebelled against this whole Messiah idea. Saul wouldn't let God rule the people through him. Saul decided, I'll rule the people through me. And God rejected him. So then it moved to David. And David was the man after God's own heart who was willing to allow God be king through himself. He became the first Messiah, the first anointed one who would rule on God's behalf over his people. And David did such a good job at letting God be king and him be the mere vessel and Messiah that God makes a promise with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and says, David, all of your descendants, all of the little Davids will get to be Messiah forever. Your family gets the role of Messiah, nobody else. And so in the over Jerusalem, nobody other then a son of David was the Messiah, the ruler on behalf of God over the people of Israel. Until, of course, the exile. And that's what I'm going to come to now. I, I mentioned to you guys that we have five books in the Psalter. We're in book number five. These five books, some very smart scholars have determined that there is a story in these books. That these books weren't accidentally just, oh, we found a collection in the temple. Cool. There's one. Oh, look, some dusty old city. There's another collection. And, well, these were passed down because the Jews use them today. There's a collection. It wasn't just this hodgepodge of books and they said, here's five Psalter. You can tell that there was some intentional collecting here 
because David's psalms aren't all front-loaded. David, 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 and then people after David. It's not all chronological like that. David's name shows up everywhere in this altar. So there was some intentional selecting about what psalms go in what books. Now, when did this happen? Well, I mean, by the way, this is what editors do, right? They, they order things, they put them together. We shouldn't think that the Psalter came about because day one, we're going to write a psalm to the Lord. So Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Yeah, this sounds good. Let's keep going. And then like, oh, I'm tired of that song. We need another one. Chris Tomlin, get us Psalm chapter 2. So he walks in and writes Psalm 2. And then they added Psalm 3. It didn't happen like that. There was songs be written all the time by various people and they would collect them as they came and they just have this compilation of psalms and they didn't have them quite numbered then. There was just psalms. And it was when Israel rebelled against God and the kings stopped being messiahs and started doing their own thing that he came and cut them off from the land. We call that the exile. And during the exile, they realized, oops, we definitely messed this up. So let's start over. And the prophets began to promise things like, you will return to Jerusalem. And when you return to Jerusalem, God will be king again. In fact, God will not just be king of Jerusalem. God will be king of all the earth. And these things started to be written. And these hopes of a deliverer that would come and become that Messiah figure through whom God would rule not just over Israel, but over all the earth. And as these hope, as this hope started to come in a nation that felt dead, Ezekiel 37 says that they were a heap of dry bones in a graveyard. That's how he put it. The nation was over. David's kingship, done. His sons are not on the throne anymore. And so in that moment, in despair, where hope was beginning to seed and burst, the Psalter was compiled. All the many psalms that they'd been singing from pieces everywhere, they started to bring together and say, Let's put these psalms together in a way that tells the story of God desiring to become king over our Messiah for the whole earth. And so the psalms were put together. Now, primarily, you guys know the little titles above your psalms? Um, we're in a section that doesn't really actually have many. But if you go left to Psalm 110, you see right there it says a psalm of David. That's, that's called a title. And um, we right now don't really know, did these editors put those titles in to help explain it? Or were those original? Did David actually put his name on it and then pen the psalm? We're, we don't know. But what the scholars do is they see these titles as significant. Both the titles and the content of the psalm are saying something. And the psalms are ordered according to what they're saying. So here's what they're saying in the five books. Book number one, Psalm 1 through 41. You have a lot of David psalms. David is everywhere but in about two psalms. And they're just simply not even titled. So there you go. It's a mesh with David. It's because these psalms, and many of them speak of suffering. We just read of one, Psalm 22, right? The suffering of David. Um, they talk about David's suffering and rise to kingship. And he went through a hard time to get to the throne. Saul was a, quite an oppressor. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72. 
Uh, there's some David Psalms. There's a song, a Psalm of Solomon, and a lot of David's servants wrote these Psalms. And it tells a story about David being on the throne. Book number three, 73 through 89. These Psalms take a sorrowful tone because Solomon ended the last Psalm of book two. So what happens when we open book three is we open the time of Israel after Solomon. And if you know the history of Israel a little bit, you know that after Solomon, actually, really honestly, beginning with Solomon, things got really bad. They began to sin against God. And the nation spiraled down until the exile happened when Babylon came, crushed Jerusalem, and sent them all out of Jerusalem. That's what Psalm 89 mourns about. And book 3 ends with the exile happening. Book 4 90 through 106. These are what you do in exile. There's a lot of psalms reflecting the kingship of God. We don't have a king. Messiah is cut off. So who's king? Yahweh is somehow watching over us. And there will be hope. So there's songs reflecting upon his past works and his present work. And they're hoping for a future work. And then finally you get to Psalm 5. And in Psalm 5 you get the feeling that everything is okay. Because David shows up again. David disappeared in book three and four. No David Psalms, like one or two at most. David reappears with a fury because the editors are writing to say, okay, things are great when David was king because God had a Messiah through whom he's ruling. But then this rebellion happened. Exile happened. The whole kingship is over. But Israel, a day is coming when David will resurface to the throne and God will once again be king over us and everything will be okay. And the world at large will be okay. This will be better than it ever was. And so we see David pop back up in Psalm, uh, the book number five, which starts in 107 and takes us to the end at 150. So, the Psalter is telling this five-part story. And that is what uh, I want to point out now, the, since we're in book five, a little bit about book five to build us up to where we are right now. Okay? Are we good? <laughs> book five starts with Psalm 107. Check out what 107 says. It opens with the celebration of God's redemption. What redemption? This redemption. 107 verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's Israel. Whom God has redeemed from trouble. What trouble? And gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. What what redemption is happening? 107 opens with the redemption of Israel out of exile. There is this regathering from the east, the south, the north, the west, back to Jerusalem. Yeah, it was small. I mean, we went through Nehemiah and Ezra already. But it began, God was beginning to redeem his people. The exile was coming. It didn't end, but it was coming to a close. And that's what they're saying. Let the redeemed of the Lord just praise him. It's happening. So then, right after this redemption process, exile's coming to an end. Kingship is soon to be restored. Guess what psalm pops up in 108, 109, and 110? 110. (laughs) You know what I mean. 108 through 110. Guess who pops up? A psalm of David, a psalm of David, a psalm of David. 
So we introduce David. But let's not think that this is referring merely to the past David who had reigned. There is some hope within these Psalms that speak of a possible future David. That one of David's sons will come to the throne again and be the new David, the new Messiah through whom God will reign. One ten makes this very, um, I think, clear because Jesus quotes Psalm 110 twice, both in reference to himself. And Psalm 110 speaks of this figure sitting on the throne of Yahweh and ruling with him. And Jesus tells the religious leaders that that's me. <laughs> and then he tells the high priest in his trial, right before his crucifixion, the high priest is judging Jesus. And he quotes this psalm in a sense to say, okay, you can crucify me now, but when all is said and done, you won't be judging me. I'll be judging you. Because I'm going to be sitting on the throne of Yahweh. <laughs> so there's this hope of this new David here in Psalm 110. Then we get to our chapters. And here we are. Psalm 111. And guess what it says? The new David's going to reign with Yahweh. Praise God! 112. Praise God! Those are two psalms that praise God. That's how they open up. And then Psalm 113 to 118. I won't get to go to 118 because that's somebody else's chapters. But this clunk is the psalms they would sing during Passover. 113 through 118 were celebrating the exodus out of Egypt. Okay. So now let's get to our psalms. Um. So with the new David exalted as the one through whom God will rule in 110, we now burst forth in hallelujah with Psalm 111 and 112. And 111 and 112 play on one another. Okay, they're both talking about, there's this idea of covenant. And they're, they're playing on one another about keeping covenant. So God made a covenant with his people in the Exodus, right? He brought them to Mount Sinai, gave them the Ten Commandments, covenant made, okay, so Psalm 111 verse 1 is God's part of the covenant. And then 112 is the people's part of the covenant. So 111. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So he's remembering the works of God. And if we look, um, the word, there it is, verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. Now, this word righteousness is sometimes misunderstood. We often think that righteousness means moral uprightness. That's how we throw the word around, and that's very true. To be righteous is to be morally upright, to be solid in your stance. But that's just a part of what righteous means. In the Old Testament, righteousness has a bigger idea and it has this idea of dedication to one's word. And when the Bible speaks of God's righteousness to his people, it means his determination to uphold his promises for his people. So righteousness really should be thought of this word, this, this like super word, this combination of faithfulness and justice. God is faithful to his word because it is right to be faithful to your word. And hence, you can see how righteousness can mean moral uprightness, right? Because it's morally upright for me to keep my word. 
But the big idea behind it is not just some moral excellence, some personal purity. It's that God acts with determination to keep his word for his people. So when the the psalmist says here, great are his works, and it starts talking about his righteousness, it's saying God is so good because he made a covenant and he's keeping it despite exile. He's keeping it. And so here are some ways that he's kept it. In verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him and remembers his covenant forever. Food. Remember when they were leaving Egypt? God provided. He kept his covenant. He was giving them manna because he had made a covenant with Abraham. In verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. That's the promised land. When they entered, God was righteous in giving them the promised land. He was upholding his covenant. And then verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Sent redemption to his people. As we saw in 107, that is their return from their expulsion from Jerusalem. They're coming back. God was righteous to keep his word in that. So they were coming back. So that's the idea there. Now, Psalm 112 talks about the righteous man. That's our response to his righteousness. He's faithful to keep his covenant, so we are to respond in righteousness. Not necessarily in moral uprightness, but in fidelity. As God has been faithful to the covenant, we're to be faithful to the covenant. So the idea behind us being faithful to the covenant isn't morality, but it's fidelity. For example, you notice in the Old Testament the biggest problem and complaint God has with Israel? He never has a moral issue with them. It's an idolatry issue. It's that they're unfaithful to him. They're unfaithful to the covenant. And yes, that unfaithfulness does produce immorality. But the biggest problem is infidelity. It's unfaithfulness. That's why the picture of God is the bride of Israel is in the Old Testament. The idea is that me and my wife, we're not supposed to just be completely moral with each other. We're to be faithful with one another. Fidelity. And then the New Testament, the church is also, the, the whole image is carried on. The church is the bride of the Lamb, of Jesus. Again, the idea is faithfulness in the sense of we're keeping the covenant because we're faithful to Christ. And I think that the Apostle John summed it up really well in 1 John 5. The very end of his first letter in 1 John, he ends the whole letter rather mysteriously. Like, just leaves it off like, whoa, explain that more. He says this. After all this love, Jesus love others, just all of a sudden he ends, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Period. Send it. (laughs) And I think that summarizes what righteousness is, that we're to keep ourselves from idols. So it's fidelity with Christ. Um, And of course, that does include at points morality. But but I think it's dangerous when we emphasize that what it means to be a witness is to be a really moral person. You notice how well that message is doing in our culture? You notice my generation, how well they've received that? Explain to someone what it means to save sex for marriage. You're talking to aliens right now in our culture. Morality is not the point of Jesus dying on the cross. 
It is that he, he, he bought for himself a people who will display fidelity to the one God who alone can satisfy. The one God who is king over the earth. That's what it means to be righteous and to uphold the covenant with God. He's been righteous, so we respond. Okay, now Psalm 113 to 15. Uh, remember, it goes to 18, but I'm stopping at 15 because that's my limit. Um, this begins the Psalms they sing at Passover. It celebrates what God did in the Exodus. So, um, 113, um, I want to point out verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. This is speaking of kingship. <laughs> he who is like the Lord, he who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise Yahweh. (laughs) The point is, because God's king, he makes the rules of how the earth works. That's the point. And he raises people from the ash heap. And this is Israel celebrating, we were slaves, we were in the ash heap. Because God's king, he can make slaves kings. So he takes us and brings us out of Egypt to become our own nation, a nation of priests for his namesake. And that's, I think, what that psalm is celebrating. That God delivered them because he can. That's what makes him God. And that Pharaoh had nothing against him. Um, Moses says, these are God's people. No, they're not. They're my people. Don't you see? They're working for me. And, well, guess what happened? Pharaoh, you're not a king. God is king because you just completely surrendered to him. And then 114, we see that in the Exodus event, it enthroned God as king. So verse 1, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. And that talks about how the Jordan Sea and the Red Sea and the mountains all fled before him because he's king and they're terrified. And, and how they came into the promised land, I think, is the picture there. Oh, tremble, O oh earth, at the presence of the Lord. And okay. um, So it enthroned God. At the end of the Red Sea episode, Moses begins to sing a song that basically talks about Egypt thought they're all this. And Pharaoh's riding high on his chariot to come get us, thought they're king. But God overthrew them with the breath of his nostril. That's all it took for him to overthrow Pharaoh, the almighty king of the earth. And God then became king over Israel. And the song ends in Exodus fifteen eighteen with this. The Lord will reign forever and ever. <laughs> That's what Pharaoh learned. That's what Israel learned. He'll reign forever and ever. So 114, he became, Israel became his dominion. Judah, his sanctuary. Of course, he came and dwelt amongst them at the Exodus event, the tabernacle. Okay, then finally, Psalm 115, um, you see this psalm here in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And it talks about how they have mouths they can't speak, eyes they can't see, legs they can't walk, and so forth. It makes fun of the idols. Well, what should this invoke in our minds about the Exodus story? They cross the Red Sea. God brings them to Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up there receiving the covenant of Yahweh over his people through which he'll reign over them, what are the people doing? (laughs) This is the golden calf episode. And the psalm is using that episode as as a... This psalm is recalling that episode to instruct the people, idolatry no more. 
Let's be the people of 111 and 112 who are faithful in covenant with Yahweh because he's our king. So, okay, so there is that. Now, man, this night went fast. Um, I'm going to finish us with now wrapping all this up. And what I want to do is look at 111 verse 2 to do this. 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And that just stuck out to me. The works of the Lord are great and studied. I um, want to encourage us to take that verse to heart. Because way too often, we get caught up with words and phrases. We get in Romans and we parse what is the righteousness of God has now revealed mean. Or we talk about what does justification mean. And we, you know, we do all these important things. But we get so engrossed with words and phrases that we become those who change verse 2 to say, Great are the words of the Lord. Greatly studied. But it's calling for the works of the Lord. And yes, the words are important, but the words only mean something in context of the works. And woe be us if we study the words, the words, the words, the words, the words, and have not a clue where the words fit in the overall story of what God's doing. We don't even know the works of what he's been up to. And I think we would save ourselves a lot of confusion and heartache in the Bible if we would take this psalm to heart and look at the works of God. The story the Psalter tells. The story from Genesis through the Old Testament that gets picked up with Jesus and continued on through his people, the church, to Revelation. What is that story about? What is the work God's up to? Because then we find context. We find who we are. And we find what these words mean. Now, turn with me to Matthew 1, and I'll show you something. Matthew chapter 1, first book, first chapter of the New Testament which is all the more significant. And I'll show you that Matthew understood the works of God. Now, as you're going to Matthew 1, remember that the Psalter is telling basically this story. It's telling that David was king, he had dominion and dynasty, but rebellion ended dominion and dynasty in exile. And then third, that there's going to be a new David who restores dominion and dynasty to Israel, and then eventually over all the earth. So that threefold. There's king, then there's no king, exile. Then there's going to be a new king again. Okay, so look what Matthew does. In 1-1, the book, of the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. David's named very first and up front because to Matthew... As he's reading the Psalter and he sees this anticipation of some new David who's going to come and God will rule through him one day. He realizes in retrospect after following Jesus and he sits down to write his gospel that holy moly. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah to come. He was the new David through whom God has recovered kingship over his people. Look further at the story that Matthew tells. This genealogy, um, you know, has been the boredom of many readers. 
But this is what he's doing. There's three sets of 14 names. Matthew did this artistically. And what's most important about this genealogy is the name at the end of each of these three sets. The 14th name. I'll show them to you. In verse 6, the end of the first set. It says, Jesse, the father of David the king. So we have David. The second set, it ends in verse 11. Of Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we have David, we have the exile, and now in verse 16, the genealogy ends here. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. We end with Jesus. You see the story Matthew's picking up? He's smelling the psalter, and he's realizing Jesus is the new David. He's the one who comes to end exile and to reclaim the kingship of God through himself. He is God becoming king, Matthew would say. And and this kingship is going to spread to the ends of the earth. And it's beginning in his people, the church. It's beginning here. And it's been multiplying, and it's on every continent. There's pockets of his kingship. And there's a day, as we continue to spread, there's a day when he will return and finalize the kingship over every nation and set all things right. And Matthew recognizes that this new Messiah, the son of David, is Jesus himself. And so this new David is coming to do what we read about in this psalm. Did not Jesus do chapters 111 and 112? Did not Jesus make a covenant with us? He said at the Lord's Supper, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. And I'm ratifying it with my blood as they ratified all covenants. There's a new covenant between the people of God and God himself. Because the old one was broken in the exile. And there's a, that exile's ending. The rebellion's over, and I'm restoring a people to myself. And I, with my blood, am making that covenant. And he's been faithful to it. He's been righteous in it. And he's calling a people to be righteous in response. That, that serve one king and one king alone. That bow the knee to one king. That worship and adore one king. And then we get to our Psalm 113 to 118, which talks about the Exodus. And guess what Jesus did? Well, if exile's ending, a new Exodus must be starting. And this is what's so trippy. I don't have the time to get into this, but if I remember right, it's Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15. 16, 14, 15. Jeremiah 16, 14, 15, right now. That is an awesome verse that talks about basically this. Once upon a time, people declared, wow, remember what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt? And then the next verse says, there will be a time when that story is old news. And people then say, wow, remember what God did when he brought Israel out of exile and restored them under God's kingship? You see, the exile was still going on when Jesus came. Oh, they're physically in Jerusalem, but do they have their king? Was everything set right? No. Jesus came to lead the second exodus. They were once oppressed in Egypt. Now they're oppressed under every kind of foreign dictator spread across the world. And what we began to realize is that it wasn't just Israel that was exiled. It's humanity that's been exiled from the presence of God. And Jesus came to these exiles and led an exodus for them to come back to God under his kingship. 
and I don't even have time for all this, but, but there's so much in the Gospels that show that Jesus came to lead the new Exodus. He was depicted as a new Moses. He gave a new law. He made a new covenant. Um, he was baptized in the Jordan River, which was significant for the Exodus. He w- instituted the Passover, or, I'm sorry, the Last Supper, which was on Passover. He was called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. There was an evil tyrant oppressing people, just like Pharaoh was oppressing people. There's so many similarities and Jesus, in fact, on, in Luke, it says, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke, it says that he was talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, literally in the Greek. And he came and tabernacled amongst us, John says. Jesus came as the new David to lead us out of exile and back into the presence of God, where God can become once and for all king over us through his son. And church... I want tonight to just encourage us that to remember that Jesus is king. I know things happen on the East Coast and chaos goes on in the world. But he's ruling presently through his people. And I'm calling us to faithfulness, to righteousness, that fidelity to our king, so that his kingship will begin to be seen amongst this body and the other bodies around the world. And that people will become tired of the rulers of this earth and longing for a kingdom that has more, a kingdom that has a future and a hope, a kingdom that doesn't have these politicians fighting each other, a kingdom that calls for bringing those in the dust heap up to sit with princes. So as long as we're faithful to the covenant, to what God calls us to do, We are reflecting his kingship over us. But when we're not, we're showing that other things rule us and master us. We're showing that idols rule us and master us. And that's why I think John was so big on ending his epistle by saying, all right, everything I said to you, this is what matters. Sunday night Bible study. Keep yourselves from idols. It's not a morality game. It's a fidelity game. Because we have a king who demands loyalty And we bow the knee to one, and we confess with the mouth one. And let's start letting Jesus be king through us. It's the only way the kingdom of God and the gospel will be seen. Not because of our moral standards, but because of our faithful commitment to a king. So Lord, we pray that as we...